Today we're going to begin this series of messages on the topic of explore God. And so, like I said a moment ago, very, very honored and thrilled. I've never seen such unity among the body of Christ as I am seeing it uh, in our city here in Austin, Texas. From all different uh, traditions and backgrounds, if you were here Thursday night, you got a little taste of heaven. I tell you, this place was a, it was on fire. I tell you, people were just worshiping the Lord. It was an awesome time of prayer. And so, it, it is just a great way to begin uh, this series. Before I get into the message, though, I want to say uh, we are very, very blessed today to have somebody in our church. It's not every day uh, that we have somebody from a whole completely different context and culture. And I don't know where he is seated, but I'm going to ask him to stand in just a moment. This dear pastor has planted 80 churches in the country of India. He and his wife and children have been greatly persecuted for their faith. So we want to honor you, Brother Moses, and say, God bless you. Man, what a privilege. What a blessing to have you with us. As y'all know, our, um, our team had left today uh, to go to, um, to India. And uh, so we're seeing God just do some great things among this, uh, among this great group of people. And Moses, God bless you. It's a privilege to have you with us today. We're honored, very, very honored uh, to have you in our presence. Had a chance to meet with him earlier and, uh, and pray with him. I have a dear friend in another, uh, in another state, pastors a great church. His name is Bruce Frank, and he's everything I want to be when I grow up. I tell you, he's tall, dark, and handsome, and just a great athlete. Well, he has a niece that is a student at the University of Texas. Are y'all okay from last night? Y'all still a little struggling a little bit, aren't you? But anyhow, uh, she's on full scholarship in music, and she is our guest today. And so, Sydney, I know this is kind of embarrassing. I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but would you stand and let us welcome you? God bless you. Amen. We welcome this young lady in our church. It's awesome. Full scholarship, University of Texas. That's great. All right, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to a book in the Bible that you don't hear a whole lot of sermons on. It's in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to bring it every Sunday. But if you don't, you can look on the screen here in a moment. And we will read uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And then we will look at chapter 12, uh, verse 13. My problem this week is not what I was going to say, but what was I going to leave out? There, there is so much in the Bible about our purpose in life. L let me give you the short answer, unequivocally. Without any question or ambiguity, does life have a purpose? Absolutely. You bet it does. It has a grand purpose, and here's why. Because we are not an accident. We are not an afterthought. We are actually, these human beings that we are, we are created in the image of God. We are God's highest creation. He loves us. He has an incredible plan and a purpose for us. And so we ask the question, does life, does humanity, does mankind have a purpose? Absolutely we do. And that purpose is clearly fleshed out for us uh, in the Word of God. I like that video. I really did. But it was sad to me because it is very typical of people not only in our great city but also our great country and all over the world. When you ask them, what is the purpose of mankind? Why is it that we exist on planet earth and people say well to do good I guess or to love my family I guess or I don't know not kill anybody I guess just make it through life but you know the Bible has so much more to say about this 
I love the author C.S. Lewis, and he was talking about this very subject one day. And he said, when you ask people, what is their ultimate purpose in living? What is the most pristine virtue and value in living? And he said, most people will say it is to be unselfish, to give and to be unselfish. But C.S. Lewis, as only he can, he, he presses us to think a little deeper. And he says, no, the greatest virtue of mankind is to love. And he has this little message here in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. And I want to read just an excerpt from it because it's so powerful. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy from God is offered to us. Like an ignorant child, many of us, we go around making mud pies in a slum. We cannot even imagine what is meant when God offers us, offers us a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. I like that. God offers us not a making of mud pies in the slum, but he offers his highest creation a a holiday of life, and an awesome way of living. A life, yes, of selflessness, but also a life of love. But here it is. If you were to ask me and boil it down, Brother Danny, what is my purpose uh, in life? Well, I like Rick Warren's book a number of years back, and he began the chapter, he began the book by saying, life is not about you. There is a greater reason to live than just what we want. Our greatest purpose in living is this. Mm, you ready for this? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith written in 1647 and has incredible biblical support. Years ago I read John Piper's great book. It's called Desiring God. And in this book he makes an argument for Christian hedonism. Now, when I think of the word hedonist, Man, I have all kinds of negative connotations pop up in my little mind. I think of a hedonist is an Epicurean. He lives by the motto of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Whatever gratifies my flesh, whatever appeals to my sensual desires, that will I do. And yet John Piper turns it on its head and says, let us be Christian hedonist. Let us glorify God and let us find our pleasure in Him and let us worship Him, let us serve Him, let us honor Him, and in so doing, we will find the real purpose of living. So today, what I want to do is I want to go to the Word of God and I want to show you really a dichotomy. I want to show you in the life of the greatest, probably the wisest man who ever lived, I want to show you a picture of his life when he is pursuing life without God. And then I want to show you his life as he was pursuing it with God. I tell you, Solomon is an interesting character, isn't he not? I mean, his dad, by the way, was a handsome man by the name of, somebody help me, Bible scholars help me, David, that's right. In fact, the Bible says specifically that David was a handsome young man and he married a lady by the name of Bathsheba, and Bathsheba is this beautiful woman in Scripture. So you got this beautiful woman, you got this handsome man, they come together, they have a child, and they name him Solomon. And Solomon is just like his parents. He is this beautiful creature of a man, this wise man, and, and God blesses him and he makes him the king 
over all of Israel. And when you read the life of Solomon, you, you cannot help but be arrested by the dichotomy of his life. He starts out really well, then he ventures away from God, and in the end, he comes back to God. You know what? I just described many of your lives. You started out good with God. I don't know, maybe it was in your freshman year at the university, or maybe it was when you, know, you got in with a group that questioned the existence of God, and you found yourself you know, meandering away from your roots and from God, and, and you tasted it, you touched it, you felt it, you smelt it, you enjoyed it, you experienced it. But then like Solomon, you say, you know, it really left me, left me empty. And now you're kind of migrating your way back to the faith of your fathers and your mothers, and you're coming back, if you will, to the real purpose that you were created, and that is to glorify the Lord. Well, this book, Ecclesiastes, is the Greek word, and we transliterate it right into English, and it's Ecclesiastes, and the word literally means to call an assembly. In fact, Solomon calls himself the preacher in Ecclesiastes 12.8. He says, here I am, the preacher, and I share these truths with you, the assembly, the Ecclesiastes. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, that's what it says, Ecclesiastes. We transliterate it right into English, Ecclesiastes. It means to call the assembly together. And here is the preacher Solomon, and he is about to give us a grand, a grand message. Now, before I read the text, let me give you this little uh, tidbit. 38 times in this one book alone, he's going to use a word that starts with a V, like in victory. Somebody help me. What is that word? Vanity. 38 times. Solomon will use the word vanity, and in the rest of all of Scripture, this word is very seldomly, infrequently used, but in Solomon's call to the assembly, Ecclesiastes, he uses this word 38 times. Now, watch this. 37 times in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 alone, with me now, wait, stay with me, 37 times... He refers to me, myself, and I. It's all about me, Solomon. Now remember, this is the Solomon who has walked away from God. So let's read it. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Are y'all ready? Y'all good? Everybody, y'all awake? All right, here we go. This is God's Word. All right, this is awesome. We get to read it today. The Bible says in chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my, I said in my, by the way, that's two of the 37 usages of me, myself, and I. I said in my heart, come now and I will test you with myrrh. Therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was havel. The Hebrew word havel, it means vapor. It means a breath. It means it's here in a moment and it's gone. He says it is vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of myrrh, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. Now, he has a pretty exalted view of himself, I'm, I'm telling you. He's a big ego at this time. I made my works great, I built myself houses, and I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. 
I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. Look at me. Look at me. I did all of this. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great. And I excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did it. If I wanted it, I got it. If I wanted to sleep with her, I did. If I wanted to drink it, I did. If I wanted to, to do whatever I wanted to do, I did it. I did not keep them, keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all of my labor, and this was my reward from all of my labor. Then, then, then. I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled and indeed. Here it is, church. Here it is. And indeed, all was vanity. All was havel. It was a vapor. It was futile. It was lifeless. It was like I was grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. So, this is Solomon wandering from God, all right? But before you castigate him and reprimand him so thoroughly, let me read chapter 12, verse 13. This is the end of the book, and it's almost like Solomon now has come back to his right spiritual mind. And this is what he says. Okay, it's on the screen. Here we go. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. In other words, he prefaces what he's about to say. He would be like the professor who said, Hey, class, listen to me just a moment. This is going to be on the test. When I used to teach in seminary, whenever I said that, the sleepiest dude woke up. It was amazing. It's fascinating to me. Or they would go, Whoa, what did he say? It's coming. I was like, Yeah, this is going to be on the test. And Solomon would say, Listen, Jesus would put it like this. Verily, verily, or amen and amen. What I'm about to tell you, you've got to get this. Here it is. Fear God and keep His commandments. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is man's all. This is man's genuine purpose in living. It's not to acquire. It's not to accumulate. It's not to build up a prodigious ego so that everybody knows how important you are and everybody will bow down at your altar. No, Solomon says, no, in fact, I did that. I had it all, and it left me absolutely, unequivocally empty. I knew in my heart of hearts there had to be more, and he said, I came back to my senses to fear God and keep his commandments. So here's what I want to do. Number one, I want to look at vanity, all right? And you, if you have your outline there, uh, vanity, you can write that word in point number one. And that really is chapter 2, verses 1 uh, through 11. Can I remind you that Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, he really started out well. 
I'm not going to go back through his whole life. This is not a biographical sermon on Solomon, but I think it really helps if we get the context. Do you remember Solomon, 1 Kings 3? God appeared to him in a dream and a vision and said, Solomon, ask me, what shall I give you? Y'all remember that? Ask me anything you want, Solomon, and I'll grant it unto you. And Solomon said these words, and this was so incredibly wise. He responded with a great dependence on the Lord with a humble heart. He only asked for wisdom. He said, God, give me an understanding heart so that I could judge the people and I can discern between good and evil. In verse 9, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12, this is what God said. We have it on the screen. This is what the Lord told Solomon early on in, in his Solomonic reign. Here it is. Behold, I, now this is God speaking. I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you, Solomon, nor shall any like you arise after you. In verse 28 of that same chapter, 1 Kings 3, it says, The wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. And so, Solomon has a very auspicious beginning. I believe David and Bathsheba raised him well. I know God endowed him with incredible gifts and wisdom and justice. And yet, first, only a few chapters later, in 1 Kings chapter 11, we begin to see the demise, and we begin to understand a little bit of why Solomon would say, all that I have accumulated and amassed is nothing but vanity. You don't need to turn. I just want you to listen to these words as I read in God's Word. The Bible says in 1 Kings eleven three through 6, Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Come on now. Some of y'all are going, he wasn't that smart after all, was it? No, I know. And God told them, don't, you don't need to do this. But he said, 700 wives, 300 concubines... If I wanted it, I got it. No one was outside of my grasp. He's the most powerful, wealthy, wise man on the planet. But notice what it says next. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. As the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And by the way, Molech was the god that you sacrificed your children to. And Solomon had been so duped and so deceived that he participated in these sacrifices of children to the false god of Molech. So the Bible says, so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord he did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. End of quote. And I'm telling you, this is one of the reasons why I believe the Bible really is God's Word. Because if we were writing this, we would say, don't pull the skeletons out of the closet. I mean, we're going to just present this beautiful little picture of Judaism, this beautiful little picture of Christianity, and we don't want to, we don't want to cloud nobody's mind. No, the Bible is not like that. By the way, if you have not read the Bible... It is a fascinating book. 
It tells you the good, the bad, the indifferent, and the ugly. It tells you God in His greatness as He blesses. And it tells you God in His punitive punishments, He will punish those that He, that he loves. I mean, and, and people, they are, they are people just like you and me. They have these temptations. They have these desires. Sometimes they rise up and overcome, and many times they do not. And we find this here in Solomon's, in Solomon's life. But before we cast a stone at him... Have not we done the same thing? Have, we, have you ever done this? I know better, and I know what God says, but. <laughs> have you ever done that? And what follows that conjunction is not pretty. And like Abraham, I, I, I know what, what I'm supposed to do, but uh, I'm going to help God, and Hagar and I, we're going to kind of come together. And you, you find this throughout the Scriptures. And Solomon is no different and he says, I know what God says, but I am going to do this. Have you ever heard this statement? Many people pursue a life outside of God only to find that the ladder that they placed upon the mountain, at the end of their life, they realize that the ladder was leaning against the wrong mountain. Or, in their GPS for life, what they programmed, the destination, led them to a place that left them unfulfilled. You know, this part of the sermon is, is it's difficult to preach, but it, it's, it's reality. It's where many people are today, like Solomon. They are secular human hedonists. This is not a life pursuing God. This is not a life of love, C.S. Lewis. This is not a life of selflessness. No, this is a life of selfishness. It's all about me. And Solomon say, look at me, learn from me. I'm telling you, 37 times I was trying to tell you it was me, 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 me. I did it all, and at the end, it left me absolutely empty. And it's like Solomon is speaking to us from God's Word and saying, don't, don't do what I did. Go to the end of the book and fear God and keep His uh, commandments. I was reading this week about a, a couple of men, and by the way, there are a lot of men. I've only given you two examples who are known for their nihilism. Y'all know what nihilism is? Nihilism is utter hopelessness. No purpose, absolute despair. Bertrand Russell was a nihilist. He was a British philosopher. He died in 1970 at the age of 98. And in one of his writings, his essay entitled A Free Man's Worship, this is what he wrote. Man in his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That's really encouraging. I mean, really think about it. I mean, whoo! All life is is a collocation, an accumulation of atoms with no purpose, no God, no vision of the afterlife. That is man. And then he goes on to say, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to the extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a, human in, of a universe in ruins. No philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. 
Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. End of quote. Wow. <laughs> that put me in such a good mood. I read that and I was like, woohoo, man, I, I'm a bunch of atoms. I mean, it's all going to end in dust and there's no God, there's no afterlife. I mean, really, he believed that and he taught that. Well, I know he died in 1970, but let me tell you about somebody who's not dead. He's very much alive. He is the greatest evangelist of atheism today. His name is Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins has written a lot. I watched a debate, a little bit of a debate this past week with him. And as he was speaking, I believe it was in Oxford. Let me tell you something, guys. This guy's vicious. If you want to, you want to find somebody who hates you and hates your faith in God, it's, it's this guy. And this is what he said. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Some people are going to get lucky. You won't find any rhyme or reason in it. No, there is no justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's it. That's all. There is no God. There is no eternal life. I mean, you just get out of life what you can because there's no real. That's nihilism. Nothingness. Do y'all know anybody that believes that? I know a lot of people believe that. At the end of the day, how happy are they? I mean, how really joyful are they? Tom Brady. Tom Brady's not a philosopher or a theologian, but he, he is a quarterback. And he plays for probably the best team over the last decade, the New England Patriots. And Tom Brady, I mean, you know, he, he looks a lot like me. Come on now. Come on now. He's 6'5". He's handsome. And he, he has more money than he will, he will ever spend. He's married to a supermodel. And he has been called one of the prettiest people on the planet. And then he said these words. I have three Super Bowl rings and still feel like there's something greater out there for me. On Friday, just two days ago, I watched an interview with Tom Brady. It was one of the saddest things I ever saw. They said, he said, I had a reporter ask me the other day. He said, he said uh, Tom Brady, what are you going to do after football? And this is what he said. He said, there is no life for me after football. He said, this is, this is my life. He said, the only thing I guess I can do is go spend time with my kids, I guess. But I don't, I don't really have a life after football because I was made for this. And I thought, it, that's really sad. I, I don't care how much money you have, how good looking you are, how educated you are. If you don't have the Lord, then you really don't have life. I know. It's the truth. Some of you are like, please, give me some good news. Enough of the vanity and that stuff. What's the point? Number two, what is the point in this? All right, here it is. Let's go quickly through this next section. It's called the victory. And the victory stems from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, verse 13. And I love this. Um, Solomon just closes his book on a crescendo. He, he, just, he, he closes with a word of hope and expectation and really it closes with the word of instruction one writer says this about the text we're reading here in a moment it says amidst all the difficulties and inequities of life 
as well as in the midst of all of life's blessings and prosperity, one duty remains. One duty remains primary and unchanging, and it is this, man's honor and obedience to the Creator God. This alone will merit and secure happiness and fruitfulness on earth and throughout eternity. So he gives us these two words of wisdom. And by the way, Solomon in his greater times, when he wrote the book of Proverbs, it is exquisite. For about 10 years now, every day of my life, I have read a chapter in the book of Proverbs. Today is uh, September the 8th, and so it correlates with the chapter in Proverbs. Today, I read in my quiet time, Proverbs chapter 8. Tomorrow is September the 9th. You, you get the picture for 10 years. And I find myself, a lot of times, I speak in Proverbs. I just I go along in life and say what the book of Proverbs says, and, and it just kind of is, is saturated in my mind. Solomon, he wrote the Song of Solomon. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote most of the Proverbs. And here's what he said. Number one, he said, fear God. Proverbs 9.10. When I was in Jerusalem, I had an opportunity to have a, a ring in Hebrew. I said, I want you to engrave in my, on my ring Proverbs 9.10. It's one of my life verses. And it says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. To fear God. What does that mean? Really. Let, let's talk about it for just a moment. To fear God. Does it mean to live your life in cowering, going, oh, God's up there. He's going to zap me with a holy lightning bolt. He's going, to, he's going to obliterate me. I mean, he hates me. God, I fear you. No. It's not that at all. To fear God is to love him so much you don't want to disappoint him. To fear God is to revere God and to honor God and to thank God and to recognize he's the creator. You are the created. That he is the owner and the possessor, and you are merely uh, the steward. You say, well, I don't like that, because that puts God above me, and ain't nobody above me, because it's all about me. Let me tell you something, friend. I'm going to go ahead and tell you something. That life doesn't work. You can try it. You can squeeze out of the nectar of every sensual pleasure, out of every fruit. You can squeeze it out, but in the end, it's going to leave you dry. You say, well, I just need a few more girlfriends. Hello? A thousand he had a thousand women he slept with. No, 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 that's not good. No, 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 it's, that's not good. He says, I did it all, and I come to the conclusion it was worthless. It was a waste of my time. Really what I should have been doing is honoring God with my body. That's what Solomon would say. I should have feared God. I, when I hear the word fear God, I love him so much, I don't want to disappoint him. Is there a punitive side to God? Is there a holiness to God? Is there a justice to God? You bet. And God will discipline me. God will chastise me. You know why? Because I'm his child. I tell you who I fear for most is those who live like they want to and they get away with it. Can I just tell you also, I can't get away with nothing. Nothing. I've never been able to get away with anything. I try to be bad. I get spanked. I mean, God just goes, he'll go through all the people. Mm -mm, there you are. You shouldn't have done that. I'm like, what is up with that? And it's the same today. I, 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 I can do something. I get, I get You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have thought that. And, and that's okay because that means he really loves me and he disciplines me. And I fear him in the most healthy, honorable sense of the word. Number two, he says, keep the commandments of God. Keep his commandments. 
His commandments are not so heavy. You know, this week as I was reading an expose on, on radical Islam, and I was juxtaposing radical Islam with Jesus. And it is a fascinating story um, by this, this scholar. It's a very scholarly uh, article. I believe he's a Catholic who wrote it. And I could not help but think as I, as I read about Sharia law, and countries now are embracing Sharia law. Europe is on the verge of being overtaken with Islam and Sharia law. And this author said the reason it is is because Europe has abandoned Jesus Christ. And when you abandon Him, listen, people think that the vacuum will never be filled. The vacuum is always filled. Jesus said, take me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So many times I want to look in the face of these atheist professor friends. and If we keep going down this road in America, I believe we will be just like Europe. And if God does not spare us, ladies, get the shawls out. Cover up your heads. Cover up your face. Listen, guys, I'm not just kidding. There is a radical nature of Islam that would love to overtake Europe. It's trying to overtake Europe, and they hate America. They think of Miley Cyrus gyrating on a stage. That is America, and they hate it, and they would love to overtake us. Jesus is not so bad, is he? Jesus is pretty awesome, isn't he? When you compare the two, there is no comparison. Believe on Him. I don't know about y'all, but I got chill bumps like all over my body right now. I'm just like, believe on Him before it's too late. Fear God. Keep His commandments. Let me ask you this. Is this being mean? You're a parent, you have a child, and you see your child walking toward a hot stove, and she is about to place her hand on the hot stove, and you holler at her, don't, don't do that, please, don't do that. And you grab her and you stop her. Are you being unkind? If you see a child walking into the traffic, oncoming traffic, he's just a little toddler, two-year-old, and he's just walking, he's about to be run over, and you as a dad, you, you holler at him, and you say, no, don't, don't do that, and you, you grab him, and you pull him away. That's not being mean. That's being very protective and very kind. Listen, this book is not about meanness. This book is about kindness because God wants to protect you from destroying yourself. That's why he's given us these commandments. Dr. Edwin Huey, he's a Chinese-American. He immigrated to the States. He had, he had nothing, Hong Kong, and he came to America. And he was a self-made man. He went to UCLA and got his bachelor's degree. Continued on in his education. At British Columbia, he got his medical degree, a doctorate of medicine. He lived in Los Angeles, California, and he said, I don't want to just be one of the guys. I want to be the guy. So he went back to school and got a Ph.D. so that he could be the head of the department of a prestigious hospital in Los Angeles, and he did. And he was at the top. He made a lot of money. He was married. He had three daughters. And he had lived his life for the last 30 years totally 
alienated from God. Now, he had had a pastor in Hong Kong. He had had a little bit of an education about who God is and who God, uh, what God wanted him to do with his life. But when he got to America, he said, forget that, man. This is, the, this is the land of making money. And he did, and he became very wealthy, 40 years of age, at the top, at the top, at the echelon. He had a little pain in his side, and he goes, ah, that's odd. He said, my abdomen, he says, bother me. He says, well, I've got tons of doctor friends. I'm going to go find out what's going on. He went to a doctor friend. The doctor said, I think this is a little bit serious. You may need to go see an oncologist. And so he said, okay. And so he went to a, a cancer doctor. And at 40 years of age, the cancer doctor looked at him and said, Dr. Huey, you have a tumor the size of a golf ball in your liver. I'm sorry. you got six months to live at best. Pancreatic, liver, can, it's, it's horrible. All cancer is horrible, amen? <laughs> so Dr. Huey went back to his home, beautiful palatial home in Los Angeles. He couldn't sleep. He began to think about God. He began to think about spiritual things, and he picked up the phone, and guess who he called? He called that pastor back in Hong Kong. And he told him what was going on. And the pastor said these words. I love pastors like this. The pastor didn't say, you reprobate. That's what you get. That's what you deserve. You walk away from God. That's just what you get. You know, there are people like that. And it hurts the Christian faith far more than we ever realize. And the pastor said, oh, Dr. Huey, I'm so glad you called. and praying for you. And let me read some scripture to you. He read Psalm 105. And then he said, oh, doctor, he said, would you be interested and bowing on your knees with the phone in your hand, would you pray to receive Christ today and let the Lord come into your life and change you and save you? Dr. Huey said, man, you bet. What have I got to lose? I mean, I'm, I'm about to go into eternity. At 40 years of age, he bows on his knees. He talks to the pastor, and the pastor says, pray with me, dear God in heaven. He said, dear God in heaven. And he prayed the sinner's prayer. He stood up, and for the first time in his life, he said, I had this joy. I had this peace. I had this forgiveness. So this is what he did. True story. It's midnight, 1 a.m. He goes up to his wife and says, Honey, <laughs> hey, wake up. She's like, what in the world? He said, I need to talk to you. Please get up. She got up, went in the kitchen. He said these words. He said, Honey, I have given you everything under the sun. I have provided your every need. But the greatest thing I have not given you and that is a knowledge of Christ. So he shared with her what the pastor shared with him. She got on her knees at 1 a.m. She prayed to receive Christ. I mean, she was, she was born again right there in the home. And they both rose up from prayer, and they got so excited. Did I tell you all they had three daughters? Did I tell you I think they were teenagers about the time? This is fun. They go into their bedrooms one-on-one and says, Hey, <laughs> wake up. And those girls, can you imagine those teenage girls going, Mom, Dad, you've lost your mind. Get out of my room. And they, no, 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 we're not leaving your room. You're leaving with us. And one by one, disheveled hair, sleepy heads and all, they come into the kitchen and the dad says, My precious daughters, I've given you everything. Everything. The clothes you wear, the house we have, the cars you drive. We are, we are so wealthy. But I have not given you the greatest thing. And that is the knowledge of who God is. And so he shared the gospel with his daughters. And his wife 
she chimed in and said, Honeys, isn't this awesome? I just prayed to receive Christ. They all, all three of the daughters got on their knees and asked Jesus Christ to be their Savior and Lord. You know, it's amazing. When a dad sells out to the Lord, great things happen. When a dad stands up and lives for Christ. So one of the daughters said this. She said, Dad, you just told us God loves us. We believe it. But we want you to know something. God loves you too. And we're going to pray that God does something for your cancer. So they did. And he said, well, I thank you. But he said, the prognosis is not good. He said, I know, I'm a medical doctor. And they said, that's okay. That's okay, Dad. We're going to pray for you. The next day, he scheduled an appointment. Five days later, he went into the hospital. They admitted him, and a team of top-notch surgeons opened him up. Now, what I'm about to tell you is the truth. I wish, I wish it always happened like this. But it don't always happen like this. Sometimes God heals his children in the next life. Sometimes he chooses to heal them in this life. Here's what happened. They opened him up. They closed him up. He came out of his anesthesia, and they looked at him, and they said, Dr. Huey, we opened you up. We did not find a tumor. We found an indention of a tumor in the shape of a golf ball. It was just indented in your liver, but there was nothing there. And the doctor said, Jesus healed you. <laughs> the doctor told him, he said, Jesus, he healed you. <clears throat> so today I, I found this guy. I was emailing him this week. And I was like, dude, this is, this is a pretty remarkable story. He said, there's, there's a lot of varieties about my story. He says, but I know God did something in my life. Today, let me, let me tell you who he is. He is, he is at, in Vancouver, in Canada. He is on staff at a, uh, a prestigious school there. It's called Regents University. He's a professor of bioethics and Christianity and Chinese culture. He's the dean of the Chinese studies program at a Christian college, Regent University there in Vancouver. Now, if you were to ask him, the first 40 years of living... Would you trade it for these last years? He said, absolutely not. He said, I pursued it all, I did it all, and it left me ill-prepared for eternity. Perhaps you're a Dr. Huey here today. You're very educated. You have an MD, a PhD, whatever. You are very educated. I like people like you because people like you, you're analytical and you're rational and when you lay aside, you know, figuring it all out, and you literally come to God by faith, then you become a Herb Ochoa. Herb, are you out there somewhere? Herb, there he is, my friend Herb. Herb came, y'all have heard me share this story, but let me share it real quick, and we'll have the invitation. Right. Herb came with his wife, Misha, sat in the back, and he crossed his arms as an atheist a year ago and said, I just dare you to bless me. Just, I dare you to try to even help me at all. He's mad as a hornet. I mean, this guy's got more degrees than the length of my arm. He is, he is brilliant. He's highly trained in a lot of different things, okay? Computers, engineers. He's an atheist. He's 70 years of age. He comes to Great Hills Baptist Church, and he says, man, the people there were so friendly. They reached out and shook my hand, and he's saying, you're up there preaching the Bible, and somehow I cannot explain it. 
God came to me and he revealed to me that all of my theories and all of my mathematician and all my theorems and all of my science, instead of, instead of disproving this God, they all pointed to this God and I laid aside my pride and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And about, oh, listen, 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 about a year ago, I baptized Herb and Misha. They have not missed a Sunday. Where are you, Herb? God bless you. Stand up. There he is. He had missed a Sunday. And, and I don't, I don't, where's Misha? Where is Misha? Misha, where are you? God bless you, Misha. And listen, let me tell you about this lady. She also has degrees, as long as more degrees, well, they say than a thermometer. Well, I mean, she has got degrees, nursing, she teaches nursing. And, um, and her testimony is sort of like his. And, and later in life, she says, honey, we need to go to that church. And they came, they gave their lives to the Lord, baptized them. So listen, I reach out to you today. If God can do it for a Herb and Misha and God can do it for a Dr. Huey, he can do it for you. All right? So let me pray for you. We'll have our invitation. God, we thank you so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of a changed life. Thank you, Lord, for Solomon who gives us a very clear, vivid description of a life of futility and vanity. And then, Lord, he gives us the picture of a life of victory and joy. God, I pray today that there would be many that would hear this message with a tender heart. And they would recognize, Lord, that it doesn't matter how intelligent they are or how many things they have amassed. And God, it really is empty and futile without a relationship with the God who created us. Lord, today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask you to convince people and convict people of the truth. And I ask you, Lord, to draw them into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for our purpose in living. That our purpose is far greater than ourselves. That our purpose is to know you, God, glorify you, serve you, enjoy you, and live this life that you've given us and then into eternity be blessed forever. So, Lord, I pray. And I ask you, Lord, to draw people unto yourself. With your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, I want to share with you just a moment what, what we're about to do. If you're a guest here today, God bless you. Thank you so much for coming. In the Baptist faith, in the Baptist tradition, we, we will stand in just a moment and we'll have pastors and counselors, we'll have people up here at the front and we offer, it's what's called a public invitation. We offer people, if you want to come, you want to know more about God or you want to explore Christ more or you're just ready to give your life to Christ or you're ready to become a part of our church family and then as all people, and I, and I watch God do this all the time, it's amazing. You just come to the front one of these pastors sits down with you and we share with you, we encourage you, we pray with you, and that's what we call the public invitation, okay? So, Father, we thank you for what you're about to do. We thank you, God, for the lives that are about to be changed. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you stand to your feet. Terry's going to lead us. Please don't leave. Please stay with us. Most important part of the service, we're going to sing our praise to God and we invite you to come as we sing.